The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first Listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hello, and welcome to Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. I'm your host, Jay Harris. I've had over 20 years of experience as a journalist and sportscaster, hosting a variety of ESPN shows from SportsCenter to Outside the Lines. But I'm also a barista on this show because I'm all about squeezing juice. From the greatest scandals involving sports, that is. Playing Dirty is the podcast where you're guaranteed to get the inside scoop about scandalous fumbles that have taken some of the greatest athletes all the way down. now I'm ready. Today's episode delves into a controversy that transcends sports, pulling politics heavily into play. Because you see, it's about a National Football League player who did everything right on the field, but got caught up in a crushing headlock off the field where a terrible teenage decision collided with dubious due process. Have a napkin on deck because this scandal is going to make your eyes water and your jaw drop. This story starts in Rome, Georgia, although a lot less busy than its Italian counterpart, with a population of only around 37,000 people. The Rome in Georgia has some bragging rights in its symphony orchestra, which is the oldest one in the southern United States, and its quaint clock tower. It's rich in natural beauty nestled in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, but given its history as a southern U.S. state, racial tension does exist. Keeping in mind the racial disparity throughout history in this small, scenic town, 
You can probably imagine one particular school there, Pepperell High School, back in the early 2000s, and the types of challenges that a black student at Pepperell, a young man named Marcus Dixon, might have had. It wasn't like Marcus Dixon was any stranger to hardship before his high school experience at Pepperell. He had a difficult childhood from the start. His biological mother, Glenda Loyal, is alleged to have been a 15-year-old drug-addicted prostitute at the time of Marcus's birth on September 16, 1984. She didn't have the tools to take care of herself, let alone him. And Marcus's biological father, Craig Hawkins, was never in the picture, supposedly calling his son a mistake before vanishing from Marcus's life. So like approximately 10% of kids in the state of Georgia, Marcus started out life being raised by a grandparent, in his case, his maternal grandmother. With an elderly caregiver who was not totally enthusiastic about stepping up, Marcus had to be self-motivated and work doubly hard from a young age to find a purposeful path forward for himself. And he did. Marcus figured out real fast what social entrepreneur Stephen C. Hogan famously quipped as an adult. You can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. So Marcus gave his million-dollar dream to be somebody his all. No matter the school subject, no matter the sport, Marcus was unstoppable. His incredible tenacity paid off when Marcus was nine years old. A little league coach of his named Ken Jones, who also worked as the maintenance manager at Pepperell High School, noticed that this kid was really something special. Ken saw more than just an aspiring athlete on the field when Marcus stepped up to the little league plate. He saw a young boy with an undeniable thirst for a better life. So he decided to be more than Marcus's coach. Ken became an advocate for Marcus, bringing his wife, an elementary school teacher named Perry Jones, into the fold and together nurturing one of the hardest working, most gifted kids either of them had ever come across. In order to better support Marcus and alleviate the pressure of child-rearing on Marcus's grandmother, Ken and Perry Jones invited Marcus to spend time living in their home alongside their own biological son, Casey. This turned out to be a transformative experience for Marcus, who enjoyed the security of living with the Jones family so much, he decided to make a life-changing request. At just age 12, he asked Ken and Perry Jones if he could move in with them permanently. It just felt right. When they agreed and sealed the deal by pursuing a formal adoption, it forever changed Marcus's life for the better. Years later, looking back on his adoption, Marcus said, I have the strongest parents on earth. They've got my back 110%. And Ken and Perry Jones certainly did, proving their parental commitment to Marcus by welcoming him into their family and always standing by him through the extreme ups and downs that were to come. With his grandmother's blessing, Marcus became family, said Ken Jones. He never gave us a lick of trouble. And while 12-year-old Marcus certainly may not, in and of himself, have given his adoptive parents any trouble, his addition to the Jones family certainly invited it. After all, the Jones family was white and Marcus was black. Ken Jones' mother was so against the adoption that she moved out of the family's home. And Ken stopped speaking to his brother, who, according to the LA Times, didn't approve of racial mixing and refused to accept Marcus as family. Ken and Perry Jones' sacrifice and commitment to Marcus Dixon's well-being marked the beginning of a unique family dynamic. In contrast to his difficult beginnings with absent parents, the Joneses provided Marcus with stability, guidance, and unconditional love. Marcus's adoptive father, Ken, also happened to have a great eye for athletics. Despite coaching Little League himself, 
Ken urged his six foot six inch tall son to put baseball on the back burner and focus on football. Early on in this pivot, it was clear that Ken had unlocked a powerhouse with his recommendation. Marcus Dixon was not your run-of-the-mill high school football star. He was a talent the likes of which Pepperell High School hadn't seen since Randy Johnson. Went on to play for the NFL's Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Seattle Seahawks. He was a student there in the early 1970s. In his junior year at Pepperell, Marcus Dixon carved his name into the football field like a maestro conducting Rome's famous symphony orchestra, leaving offenses absolutely bewildered. Picture this, a jaw-dropping 98 tackles, 12 for a loss, three sacks, and seven passes defended. Whoa, football wasn't just a game for Marcus Dixon. Watching this 17-year-old play was bearing witness to history in the making. Through his focus, raw skill, and work ethic, Marcus elevated football to an art form. His performance on the gridiron required the kind of physical and mental toughness most of us will probably never understand and which most of us will probably never need on tap in quite the same way Marcus ultimately did. Despite now having a loving family and establishing himself as a football standout, Marcus's senior year in high school was far from just highlight reels suitable for ESPN. The first shadow loomed over his promising career as he faced an unexpected adversary, a chipped bone in his left knee. That means that a fragment of bone came loose and was floating around in the knee joint. Bone chips in the knee are very painful, and given that this injury struck right as scouts were out looking at high school football players for college opportunities, Marcus's sports future was at risk. But Marcus Dixon, whose background had demanded resilience, wasn't about to bow down to adversity. He had so much to fight for now. Football wasn't just his dream anymore, after all, but his family's. So Marcus charged onto the field for the season football opener his senior year, battling through the pain in his knee. As the season rolled on, it became clear that Marcus couldn't sustain his level of play through sheer willpower and a pushing-through-the-pain approach alone. He took the plunge and went under the knife. He knew he would be temporarily benched, but Marcus figured he could recover quickly and get back to football. Besides, just because he was taking a little time out to heal, Marcus knew he was still likely to attract college scouts' attention. It was an educated gamble. After all, unlike many athletes, Marcus had pushed himself in all areas of his life. Driven by need, he was a grade-A student with a 3.96 grade point average, making Marcus a standout not only in football, but also in the classroom. His double whammy credentials, academic and sports excellence, attracted the attention of several prestigious universities, with scholarship offers pouring in from the likes of Alabama, Georgia, and Auburn. But Marcus opted for Vanderbilt University, earning himself a full scholarship and an opportunity to play for the Vanderbilt Commodores football team. Vanderbilt, a private university founded in 1873 in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee, is a campus from which pro sports careers and lucrative professions in many disciplines have been launched. Jay Cutler, Bill Wade and Casey Hayward are just a few Vanderbilt University alumni to make it in the NFL. So it says a lot about Marcus's talent that despite losing some of his crucial senior high school season at Pepperell to injury, the Vanderbilt Commodores stood steadfast by their scholarship commitment to him. He was a great bet for them both on and off the field. In fact, Marcus was one of then new Vanderbilt head coach Bobby Johnson's most heralded commitments in his first full recruiting class. 
But as life often demonstrates, fate can pivot fast. Just as Marcus stood on the precipice of a new chapter at Vanderbilt, his life took a dark detour. To set the stage of Marcus's fall from grace, let's first address how well he was thriving in Pepperell High School, where only 6% of students are black. Well, one thing about football is that, as with many sports, individual athleticism has demonstrated an ability to transcend racial prejudice, temporarily and to a degree. Fans are colorblind just as long as an athlete is winning for their team, just as long as the player's accomplishments are supporting the community's overriding objective to be number one on the field. But the moment a black athlete isn't perceived to be an asset on or off the gridiron, well, that's quite another matter. And of course, this isn't just the case at Pepperell High School in Georgia. Did you know that the National Football League didn't announce that it would discontinue the use of race norming, which is the practice of assuming a lower baseline of cognitive abilities in black players, in legal settlements for concussion-related injuries until June 2nd, 2021? It took until 2021 for the NFL to denounce their long-held belief that race is a binary, biological concept that states differences in black bodies and minds are not only existent, but quantifiable. What? Scientific American reiterated strongly that the NFL had been scientifically wrong on all accounts over the years and published its statement that race norming is an inherently anti-black form of scientific racism that is evidence of slavery's afterlife. Ironically, more than 70% of the NFL's labor force on the gridiron is black. Whereas, according to Statista, as recently as August 2023, Half of all football fans between 18 and 29 years old and 65% of all football fans over the age of 30 are white. So white fans are overwhelmingly cheering on black players despite proven endemic racism within the sport of football. Forbes' Richard McGahey summed up this bizarre, tenuous relationship between football players and fans clearly, saying, Sporting success and exemplary individual performances by black people can't solve structurally embedded racial discrimination. And McGahey's right. For as long as Marcus was bolstering Pepperell High School's winning record in giving Floyd County School District and Georgia as a whole bragging rights, well, his skin color could be largely overlooked. Just as long as he didn't cross any major lines, of course. So what exactly were those lines? Well, remember how members of Ken and Perry Jones' family refused to accept Marcus and broke ties over his adoption? In addition to white parents adopting a black child, another practice that many people would not accept in Georgia, and in many U.S. states for that matter in the early 2000s, was interracial dating and marriage. In fact, many mixed-race couples still face backlash even today. I have not yet counseled an interracial wedding where someone didn't have a problem on the bride's or the groom's side, the Reverend Kimberly D. Lucas said when asked about her experiences. I think for a lot of people, interracial relationships are okay if it's out there and it's other people. But when it comes home, it's something that forces them to confront their own internal demons and their own prejudices and assumptions. It's still really hard for people. Reverend Kimberly D. Lucas's assessment jives with statements from people who were actually at Pepperell High School with Marcus Dixon. For example, Josh Pilgrim, who played sports with Marcus for years, said that while Marcus's race wasn't exactly an issue at Pepperell, there were definitely limits to what was considered acceptable. Josh said that most local people disliked the idea of interracial dating and marriage, including himself. 
But Marcus said that interracial relationships developed anyway at Pepperell. The girl's parents didn't accept the fact that they were hanging out with a black guy, he told reporter Ellen Berry. So the girls would tell him, you can't call, but we can talk on the computer. Wow. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, a lot of this background information that I've shared is difficult to swallow. But now that I have shared it, you have a taste for the environment in which this tragic scandal brewed. Let's start with a fact that everyone can agree on. On February 10th, 2003, Marcus Dixon had sex with a fellow student named Christy Brown in a school trailer. You know a little bit about Marcus already. So who was Christy? Well, Christy was a 15-year-old white sophomore who was three months shy of her 16th birthday. By all accounts, she was industrious, much like Marcus, working after school, cleaning classrooms and trailers to help earn extra money. And Christy was a virgin until her sexual encounter with Marcus. Now, before we dive into what went down with Marcus and Christy specifically, 
let's take a look at the wider facts around teenage sex. First, there's the age of consent. The age of consent is the age at which a person is considered to be legally competent to consent to sexual acts. What this means is that an adult who engages in sexual activity with a person who is younger than the age of consent is unable to claim that the sexual activity was consensual, period. The person below the minimum age is considered to be a victim, and their sex partner is therefore classified as an offender, although some jurisdictions provide exceptions through Romeo and Juliet laws if both of the participants are underage or close in age. There is no universal age of consent. Age of consent laws vary widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. What you need to know for this plain dirty scandal is that the age of consent in the state of Georgia is 16, even though a number of states, including Tennessee, Vermont, Virginia, North Carolina, New Jersey, Maryland, and Maine, have lower ages of consent, between 13 and 15 years of age. Now, here's the other thing about age of consent laws and really laws in general. While they're certainly meant to apply to everyone equally, it's an unfortunate reality that teenagers are, on the whole, just not as interested in learning about laws as they are interested in learning about sex. As British novelist Honor Tracy said, a student undergoing a word association test was asked why a snowstorm put him in mind of sex. He replied, frankly, because everything does. So, despite the age of consent law in Georgia being set at 16, many teenagers under the age of 16 are having sex regardless, without giving the law a moment's thought. According to Psychology Today, about 13% of teens in the United States have had sex before they turn 15 years old. And this is actually down from about 20% in 1995. Anyone listening to this podcast who has a teenage kid probably shudders hearing these stats. But deep down, where you bury all the facts you've heard and really wish you didn't know, like that more people die from chiropractors than sharks and that most laugh tracks are recorded by people who are now dead, you're probably, honestly, not surprised. It's just not breaking news that teenagers are interested in and engaging in sex for anyone who has ever been or met a teenager. What was breaking news on February 12, 2003 in Georgia and the United States at large, however, was that white 15-year-old sophomore Christy Brown accused black 18-year-old senior Marcus Dixon of rape. The details of what happened between Marcus and Christy on February 10, 2003 are unsettling and involve two very different polarizing stories. Christy said that Marcus tracked her down in a classroom trailer that she was cleaning as part of her duties in an after-school job, asked if she was a virgin, grabbed her arms, unbuttoned her pants, and raped her on a table. This is a horrendous allegation and the aftermath of Christy Brown's statement was swift and severe. Marcus, the star football player, the top senior student on the brink of graduation, was called to the principal's office where police immediately handcuffed him. As the school day ended, Marcus was perp-walked out in the midst of a sea of faces, a spectacle for everyone to see. Years later, Marcus recounted this surreal moment saying, they handcuffed me in the principal's office and school had just let out. And so I'm basically walking out as everyone is waiting on the bus. I was terrified. The gravity of the situation became increasingly clear as multiple charges were levied against Marcus. Assault and battery, rape, statutory rape, and false imprisonment. Instead of planning what dorm he'd live in and whether he'd have a car at Vanderbilt, 
Marcus was now ensnared in a complex battle on unfamiliar turf, the courtroom. The case moved like a rocket in the beginning. Christie said the rape happened in February 2003. A grand jury indicted Marcus the very next month in March 2003. Marcus decided to fight the charges. His adoptive parents, Ken and Perry Jones, stepped all the way up, spending their life savings on Marcus's defense. Perry steadfastly told the press that Marcus would never hurt a fly. He may have committed a sin, but he never committed a crime. And so, with the support of his parents, by May 2003, Marcus Dixon was on trial. David Balzer, an attorney for the prominent Atlanta law firm McKenna, Long & Aldridge, defended Marcus Dixon against the prosecution for decreased rates after reading a newspaper account of the allegations and meeting the Jones family. This man should be pursuing his education instead of sitting in jail, David Balzer exclaimed, and there were many members of the community in Georgia and at large who agreed with him. In fact, the New York Times reported that on the eve of Marcus Dixon's hearing, that nearly 100 people gathered outside the state Supreme Court holding candles and singing We Shall Overcome. Dr. Joseph Lowry, a founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, addressed the crowd at this gathering, emotionally voicing one of the cruxes of the case. If the young lady was black and Marcus Dixon was white, I don't think we would be here. Was he right? Right or wrong, defense attorney David Balzer leaned into this assertion, making Marcus Dixon's case a symbol of the broader dynamics of justice and highlighting the biases that still exist when you have a young black man and a young white girl involved in allegations of rape and violence. The case, intertwined with reputations, allegiances, and preconceived notions, turned the courtroom into a microcosm of a community grappling with the issues of race, bias, and sex. Keen legal observers speculated that Marcus Dixon's case could prove as momentous as the Rodney King, Abner Louima, or O.J. Simpson cases. This is the next significant one, regardless of how it plays out, said Mark Maurer, assistant director of The Sentencing Project, a Washington, D.C. nonprofit organization that monitors racial disparities in sentencing. It's not just an event that took place between two people, but very much symbolic of how race has played out in the criminal justice system for a century. But what about the defendant? Christy Brown matters, the Floyd County prosecutor John McClellan argued. And he was, of course, totally right about this. A 15-year-old girl stepping up with a rape claim is no small decision, after all, regardless of anyone's skin color. And while racial discrimination and disparity in the United States is an undeniable issue, so too is gender-based discrimination and disparity. As an audience of listeners familiar with the post-2006 Me Too movement that arose in the wake of sexual abuse allegations against Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein, you likely know that women's rights groups' position is to, understandably, be heavily opposed to questioning the accounts of women who allege they were sexually assaulted. But in this country, in every single instance, no matter what, we have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. That means juries can't just believe the allegations brought against the defendant, not without proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Marcus Dixon's trial hinged on one teenager's word against another's. Who would the jury believe? According to Christy Brown, she was taken by surprise while working as a student custodian after school in an on-campus trailer being used as a classroom. She testified that prior to the assault, she and Marcus Dixon barely knew one another and that she had never spoken more than a few words to him. 
Christy said she didn't scream or cry out for help because I was afraid he'd hurt me. Now, Marcus Dixon fans are quick to poke holes in Christy's account, but hear me out. Prior to having sex with Marcus, Christy was a virgin, and it does appear from third parties that prior to having sex on February 10, 2003, Christy barely knew Marcus. It's not like they were known to other students or teachers as a couple at Pepperell High School. They apparently shared one home economics class, but beyond that, nothing. Is it likely that Christy would choose to lose her virginity in the non-romantic setting of a deserted classroom trailer that she'd just been cleaning with a guy she hardly exchanged hellos with? It's worth thinking about. And Marcus's defense team, led by attorney David Balzer, knew that Christy's account was worth thinking about and that he had his work cut out getting the jury to believe and accept the alternative version of events told by Marcus. So let's go through Marcus's story of what happened that day in the school trailer now. In a stark contrast to Christie's rape claim, Marcus Dixon shared a different consensual account. He asserted that the encounter was actually initiated by Christie. I said we should go to my house, that there was no one there, Marcus said, but she said she was afraid someone would see us leaving together. She said that her daddy was a racist and that he would kill both of us if he knew she was with a black man. The whole nation gasped as race again took the spotlight in the Marcus Dixon trial. But just because the crux of the issue was a hot-button point of justice didn't mean that Marcus was assured an empathetic acquittal. You see, the prosecution had a not-so-secret card. While Marcus shined as an athlete, an academic, and a son to his adoring adoptive parents, his reputation was not untarnished. There were two previous sexual allegations against him that were, well, pretty damning and the prosecution was allowed to present evidence to the jury of Marcus's prior deviance. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution printed that prosecutors contended Marcus Dixon was a sexual predator. They presented evidence that the 6'6", 270-pound football star had been suspended twice from Pepperell High School for sexual activity. Neither case was reported to police, and Dixon never was charged with a crime. But jurors were told he had been suspended for exposing himself in a classroom in 2001 and inappropriately touching a 14-year-old girl after track practice in 2002. These two incidents played a critical role in Prosecutor John McClellan's case against Marcus. Without question, they made Marcus look more likely to be guilty of raping Christie. The prior allegations established a pattern of sexual predation. And the prosecution didn't just have Marcus's prior sexual misbehavior on display. They also had hard evidence that Christy was bruised when she was examined two days after the alleged rape. Marcus's defense attorney, David Balzer, understood that he had to counter Christy's story of a violent attack comprehensively in order to reduce the prosecution's hold on the jury. So the defense team called three Pepperell High School classmates to testify, all of whom said they had seen Christy's bruises days before her encounter with Marcus. Now, this would be key evidence in favor of Marcus's innocence if the jury believed it. After all, if the visible bruising injuries hadn't been caused by Marcus, that would mean Christie's story wasn't true, at least not totally. And once the jury believes a witness is lying about one thing, they're more likely to believe they're lying about everything. But more damning evidence was still coming from the prosecution. Medical testimony confirmed that Christie did have bruising in a place that wasn't visible, around her vaginal area. The defense again countered, claimed that vaginal bruising was simply consistent 
with first-time consensual sex. By this time, the jury was confused. Both the defense and the prosecution were using the same pieces of evidence to argue directly oppositional meanings in Marcus Dixon's trial. But the defense had a key witness, the clincher, defense attorney David Balzer must have thought. This witness told the court that Christie had said she had engaged in consensual sex with Marcus, but had claimed rape afterward simply to avoid the wrath of her violent, racist father. Now, this bombshell might have been expected to end the trial right there, or at least result in a very swift verdict of not guilty. The defense had presented a strong case that Christie's claim of rape was not really her own, that she was, in effect, pressured into making the allegations. But the prosecution, on the other hand, had done a solid job depicting Marcus as a violent rapist with a history of sexual offenses. The jury was made up of nine white jurors and three black jurors. After closing arguments from the defense and the prosecution that depicted the same event in completely different ways, the members of the jury began their difficult deliberations. Marcus Dixon's fate hung in the balance. The jury was deciding whether he was a violent sex offender. There was a charge of forcible rape, of aggravated child molestation, and of statutory rape. The second two offenses make consent irrelevant. You remember what I told you about the age of consent, right? Marcus was considered an adult in the state of Georgia. He was 18 years old. Christie was only 15, under the age of 16, below the age of consent in the state of Georgia. So under state law, it didn't matter whether Christie consented. The pair engaging in any sort of sexual activity would be viewed as a crime committed by Marcus unless the Romeo and Juliet laws offered up leniency. But forcible rape? Well, that would be a far different conviction. To convict Marcus Dixon of rape, the jury had to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Christy Brown did not consent. On May 14, 2003, the hushed anticipation in the courtroom was palpable, echoing the collective heartbeat of a town and country divided. Marcus Dixon, once the local sports hero, destined for national greatness, now stood on the precipice of a life-altering moment. The jury had reached a decision. This, my friends, is a cliffhanger, and I'm not talking about the cocktail people. Come thirsty and join me for the next episode of Playing Dirty, when we learn Marcus Dixon's fate and sift through the scandal's second round. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals is a production of Dan Patrick Productions, Never Ever Productions, and Workhouse Media from executive producers Dan Patrick, Paul Anderson, Nick Panella, Maya Glickman, and Jennifer Clary. Hosted by Jay Harris. Written and produced by Jen Brown, Francie Hakes, Maya Glickman, and Jennifer Clary. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 